listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everyone. So, uh, happy announcement. If you haven't heard, uh, Carol and Mikel Larinaga had little Sophia Grace yesterday. Yeah, she's really precious, just as beautiful as can be, all is well. And so we send our thoughts and prayers to them and celebrate with them. So, uh, we come to a new season in the church calendar today. Um, We've been through Epiphany these last uh, several weeks. And we've been, you know, celebrating this living epiphany, uh, Jesus Christ, and how Jesus has come into our lives, and the light has come into our lives, and, and we now live in that light, no longer in darkness. But this past Wednesday uh, started a new season. Uh, Ash Wednesday begins the season of Lent. And so I thought I might just pause just to remind us a bit of the church calendar. So... You all know me. Uh, I grew up in the Appalachian Mountains in a Pentecostal church. And so we didn't really follow the church calendar that much. I mean, we knew about Easter and we knew about Christmas, but that was about it. Um, In fact, even though we were a Pentecostal church, I didn't know there was a Pentecost Sunday. I remember when I went to college and my Presbyterian friends were going to celebrate Pentecost Sunday. I'm like, Pentecost Sunday? What's that? Like, those are my people. <laughs> That's my group. You mean there's a regular holiday called Pentecost Sunday? I was really, really delighted by it. And so the, the church calendar is different than our typical annual calendar. And there's some of those holidays or days that we celebrate on our, on our annual calendar that do have Christian origins, um, but there are a lot of others that don't. So, for example, St. Valentine's Day. So Valentine's Day has a Christian origin, although I think it's pretty much lost its sense of its Christian origin because now it's a day about romance and giving chocolate and flowers. And there are other uh, days that we would celebrate growing up that seemed like Christian holidays but actually historically aren't, like Mother's Day and Father's Day. Like, we always celebrated those. Um, We celebrated Memorial Day, we celebrated Labor Day, we celebrated Fourth of July, you know, all those great Christian holidays. And then I went, you know, I studied overseas for a bit, and you know, in England, they don't celebrate the Fourth of July. Like, that's not a holiday there. In fact, I think they decided just to forego having a Fourth of July. They just go straight from the third right to the fifth. No, just kidding. So what's, what's wonderful um, that, about the Christian calendar, what I really love about it, is that it sets our lives to a different rhythm. It, it forms us and it shapes us in ways that are different than the calendar of, of, of the nation or the calendar of business or the calendar of our, of our lives. And so the Christian calendar begins with Advent, like that's the first of the year. The beginning of the Christian year is Advent, and at Advent, we anticipate the coming of the Christ. And anticipation is about excitement. You know, like, I I got the uh, excitement and anticipation about Christmas as a child, you know, but I think it was kind of selfish, uh, because mostly I was just looking forward to getting these gifts. But Advent is a way 
for us to reflect on the love and the peace and the hope and the joy that is the coming of Christ. And so we celebrate that here. And if you look around you, um, these pictures that are hanging on the wall, uh, they were produced by, by a team of people. The artwork is Josh Galetta's. Uh, the, the coloring was Kevin O'Brien. The framing was um, Ted Smith. Uh, the arrangement was Carol Arenaga. Uh, the lighting was Greg Hanna. And so what we have are the six major seasons of the Christian calendar. So starting on my far left, uh, your right, the one with the star, that's Advent, right? So that's the four Sundays before Christmas, and we, cel- we celebrate that here uh, at Oasis, as do many Christians kind of around the world, Advent. And then you move from Advent to Christmas, and Christmas is more than just a day, right? It's Christmas time. We sing this song, The Twelve Days of Christmas. So it starts on December 25th, and it runs through January the 5th, the 12 days of Christmas, Christmas time, we sometimes call it. And then you move to the third one, and that's Epiphany. Epiphany, this kind of revelation, this manifestation of God. And the first Sunday of Epiphany often celebrates the baptism of Jesus, which was itself an Epiphany. Jesus comes up out of the water, the, the heavens are opened up. The voice says, this is my son, you know, Matthew's gospel, in whom I'm well pleased. And the spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And that season then, uh, then goes, if we kind of follow around in a circle, to this far one where you see kind of Jesus kind of looking down with a, with a uh, crown of thorns on his head. This represents Lent. It's the season that we are now in. We'll talk more about that in a second which then eventually, well, also Lent is filled with anticipation uh, and expectation of the celebration of the greatest of all Christian seasons, which is Easter, the resurrection. Paul says to his congregation, of all people, we would be most uh, distraught, we would be most hopeless had it not been for the resurrection. Like that's, that's the big deal. Like, that's the story that shapes us. And not just shapes us, but we believe shapes all of reality. Like, reality is different because of that event. The resurrection of the Christ, which we'll all celebrate here in a few weeks. And then Easter, kind of like Christmas, is not just a day, but it's also a season in the church calendar. So Easter starts on Easter Sunday, and it lasts for uh, 49 days. And it includes the 40 days that Jesus was um, on earth before the ascension and those last 10 days that the disciples went to Jerusalem to wait for the promise of the Father, which brings us to the last big moment of, of the church calendar, which is the day of Pentecost, which is our final one here. Now, the day of Pentecost is kind of a singular day. It is kind of the birth of the church. It's the dissension of the spirit. Uh, And in some ways, then, it marks the rest of the year. So most of the year, from the day of Pentecost through the end of the year, where the next year will begin again with Advent, uh, is sometimes referred to as ordinary time. I really like the sound of that, really. Um, You might think ordinary time. That doesn't sound like much of a celebration. I mean, we have Advent and Christmas and 
Epiphany and Lent and Easter and Pentecost. You know, wow, all the, the power and the excitement. But <clears throat> ordinary time is the time that we most spend with God. Like, we, we celebrate and we, um, we have these epiphanies, right, of, of God when we have these mountaintop experiences where things go right. You know, we get the promotion or the baby is born and, uh, you know, someone is healed. Uh, someone comes to faith. They get baptized, right? These are happy times, mountaintop experiences. We feel the presence of God in our lives. We feel the blessing of God in our lives. And then there's the inverse of that, of course, when things get incredibly tough, when, when the diagnosis comes in or when someone's not healed or someone dies or someone loses their job, you know, we just, we, we realize that, that life is fragile and that our dependence upon God is more than what we had realized. And so we have those kind of mountaintops and we have those kind of valley lows. But most of our life, I think, is spent on neither one of those extremes. Most of our life is either on the mountaintop, you know, feeling the ecstasy of life, nor is it in the depths of a valley where we feel like we're never going to make it. Most of our lives is just somewhere in between, is in the everyday, uh, the mundane, the, the Monday through Friday, the month after month, which rolls into year after year, which seems lately to roll into decade after decade. And that is where God is found. God is always with us. We live in the Spirit, and we walk in the Spirit. The Spirit of Pentecost is the Spirit of life, the Spirit of breath. God is the air we breathe. God is the very reason for our existence. And, and that is where we, I think we find this this beauty of the communion. So, I mean, what could this bit of bread and wine be? Right? So, so regular, so everyday in occurrence. Like every day I eat. I mean, obviously. But it's so normal. It's so everyday. And our culture... I think, is moving in this opposite direction. It tries to make everything into a commodity. What's its worth? Uh, how much can I sell it for? It doesn't, it doesn't matter how holy it has been. You know, the enchanted forest, the holy mountain. I mean, who of us would not believe that if somehow they actually found the cross of Christ that somehow it wouldn't end up on eBay or on, not eBay, but Sotheby's, right? Or, or some high-end auction. Like somebody's going to spend a lot of money for that, even if it's to put it in the Smithsonian or in the Louvre, right? Or in a museum somewhere. Everything seems to be reducible to, to its commodified value. But this story seems to be running in the opposite direction. It's saying that those things that are 
most normal, most every day, are actually holy. That God can take a bit of bread and a bit of juice and it can become the sacrament, the, the table of the Lord. These, these are the things that I think our regular practice of, of coming to church, of singing, of praying, of reading scripture, of, of listening to sermon, of fellowship, of serving one another. These practices are the practices that shape us and form us. And that's why we follow this calendar. Because we want to be formed into the image of Christ and not just into the image of a consumer. So Lent is a season of 40 days. Um, technically, it's 46 days. Um, but you don't count the Sundays. So um, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness uh, before his public ministry starts. And so we spend 40 days of Lent before we celebrate the great feast of Easter. That's, that's the history of it. Um, of course, Jesus' time in the wilderness for 40 days was already alluding to a number of times that 40 days had been used in Scripture. For example, Exodus 34, verses 27 and 28, tell the story of Moses going on, onto the mountain to actually receive the Ten Commandments. It says this, The Lord said to Moses, Write these words, in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. He was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So the story of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments includes a story of Moses fasting for 40 days. That's kind of the, the first account of these kind of 40 days things. We see it again in 1 Kings with Elijah. He's trying to uh, run away from Jezebel. And um, he too is in the wilderness. And the Lord kind of miraculously feeds him. And then he miraculously feeds him a second time. And he's like, well, now that you've eaten twice, you should be good to go. And he spends 40 days uh, moving through the desert to get to Mount Horeb, the same mountain that Moses had been on when he received the Ten Commandments. And then that's the mountain that Elijah is on when he hears the still small voice. Of course, it's not just the 40 days of Moses or the 40 days of Elijah. There is the 40 years that the uh, Hebrews wandered through the wilderness. And so when Jesus comes and he uh, spends 40 days, it's, it's kind of alluding to and in a way reenacting the life of Moses and Elijah in particular and really the life of all the children of God, the Hebrews uh, in, you know, in general. And so in addition to these seasons that we follow, lately, I would say the last year or so, we've also been following the Revised Common Lectionary. Um, the lectionary is a three-year uh, cycle, and this is, it's an ancient practice, but it gets revised, as, as you can tell in the name, Revised Common Lectionary. Uh, it gets revised every, say, 15 or 20 years. But the practice is that um, an Old Testament passage, a, a psalm, which of course is an Old Testament passage, but a, a particular psalm, 
uh, uh, something from the epistles and then something from one of the gospels will be collected together for each Sunday. And then thematically, uh, they then tell the story of the Christian faith. And it takes three years to kind of make it through uh, the scriptures. And they, in, and they end up containing pretty much every passage of scripture. Not quite every one, but pretty much every one. There's a couple of reasons why we follow this. Uh, one is that we all tend to have uh, what's sometimes called a canon within a canon. Uh, that is, we have these passages of Scripture that we constantly keep going back to. And on the one hand, I think that's okay, right? The, I think the Spirit just kind of moves and certain passages of Scripture resonate with us. And sometimes they become like a life verse. Or sometimes they kind of carry us through a certain kind of part of our lives in ways and they just resonate with us. Some of you perhaps have had that experience. I think that's healthy. Um, but... Most healthy things also have kind of unhealthy versions to it. And an unhealthy thing would be to only kind of read those things we like and not read the parts we don't like. And so by following the common lectionary, it brings all of us who now speak at Oasis to texts that otherwise we might not preach from. And it, because we believe that all scripture is inspired, uh, we want to preach the whole gospel. And so by following the calendar and following the lectionary, it puts us in a rhythm. And, and hopefully, kind of year after year, it'll keep us in this rhythm that will, that will shape us into the image of Christ, that will have us kind of walk in step with the Spirit. So we use, we use that metaphor, living in the Spirit or walking in the Spirit. But sometimes I think we're walking kind of out of step with the Spirit. And hopefully, by following the calendar and by following the lectionary, we'll do that. And so sometimes you'll hear that, well, you'll hear that phrase, like we'll do our call to worship, which is pretty consistently whatever the lectionary psalm is for that day. And that's what we mean by it. It's just this um, three-year pattern that uh, Christians use. So the Orthodox use it, the Catholics use it, the Episcopals use it, the Methodists use it, and the Lutherans use it. Uh, the, the, the rest of us who don't fall into one of those categories um, may or may not, uh, but at Oasis, we, ha we have been, and, and that's why. So the, the common texts for today uh, include this passage out of Deuteronomy that I'll get to in a minute, Psalm 91, which we read earlier, uh, Romans 10, which you're, I imagine you'll be familiar with, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. We'll close there. But we'll focus on the gospel text for today, which is Luke chapter 4. It's the story, it's Luke's account of the temptation of Jesus. And all three years of the lectionary, which have very cleverly been titled year A, year B, and year C. We're in year C at the moment. But all three years, the gospel text is one of the three gospel texts that deal with the temptation. That's how, the, excuse me, that's how the first Sunday of Lent um, in all three years uses the gospel passage about the temptation because Lent uh, kind of commemorates those 40 days in the wilderness. But let's look at Luke's account today. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. 
He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you, then, will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God, serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. So a few general observations about temptations. The first is this. Following God does not exempt us from struggle. And the presence of the Spirit does not mean the absence of temptation. Right? If Jesus, who is full of the Holy Spirit and who is being led by the Spirit into the wilderness, can struggle and be tempted, then we all can be. Temptation is part of the human condition. It is not something to fret It is not something for you to kind of uh, overanalyze, like, hmm, I wonder what's going on with me. What, What must be wrong with me that I'm being tempted? There's nothing wrong with you. You're a human being. And if Jesus was tempted, if Jesus was full of the presence of the Spirit and at the same time would struggle, then the presence of the Spirit, as I said, does not mean the absence of temptation. Secondly, Temptations are not presented as public announcements, but as kind of inner thoughts, subtle in conversations. Like, your temptations aren't going to come at you like this. You know, you're not going to get delivered a certified letter in the mail that says, Robbie Waddell, would you be willing to denounce your faith in Jesus Christ? Sign yes or no. Temptations don't come at you like that. They're subtle. Think of Genesis. There's a conversation between the serpent and the first humans. What did God say? What do you want? How does that feel? Right? They they come at us easy, smooth, maybe uh, even when we don't expect it, or maybe mostly when we don't expect it. Thirdly, The most seductive temptations don't beckon us to do wrong, but to do right. Like what we're, the the most seductive temptations are not temptations to do evil, but rather to do good. I mean, think of this. Should Jesus turn stones to bread? The hungry hope so. Should Jesus take political control? The oppressed hope so. 
Should Jesus leap from the temple and prove that he's the son of God? Those of us who've ever doubted and wondered, is this true? Wouldn't we love that? Back to Genesis again. It's not as though the serpent says, hey, would you like to be like me and crawl on the ground? The devil never says, hey, would you like to be like the devil? No, the temptation is, do you want to be like God? That's what the serpent says. And that, my friends, is why it's so tempting. Because to ask you, do you want to be like God, what's the obvious answer? Yes. Yes, of course I want to be like God. And yet, except that the, the, in order to be like God, the way we're being tempted to required us to disobey God. It required us to try to put us above God, or at the very least on par with God, so that we can make the decisions. Now that's tempting. Temptation, you should know this as well, is an indication of strength and not weakness. The greater the strength, the greater the temptation, which is too bad for Jesus, (laughs) right? But you're not tempted to do things that are utterly out of your control. For example, turning stones to bread. Now, we've all been hungry before, And sometimes we've been hungry when we didn't have access to food or not immediate access to food. But none of us have ever been tempted to turn stones into bread because it's outside of our capacity to do so. So a temptation is a sign of strength, not of weakness, because we're tempted at that point that we can do. Look, the person who is struggling, uh, the person who is poor, the person who is marginalized They're not tempted to do it on their own. The temptation of do it yourself doesn't come to the person who can't put food on the table or pay for their drugs. The temptation to do it yourself happens to the ones who have it together, right? When when the job is good and, and the money's not in short supply and the children seem to be doing what they're supposed to do, all is well. That's when the temptation to do it yourself and not rely on God is the strongest. It comes at the moments of our strength, not at the moments of our weaknesses. Let's look more directly at these temptations of Jesus. So in the first three chapters of Luke, he's had a lot to say about Jesus being the Son of God. There's the announcement to Mary. There's the announcement to Zechariah. There's the announcement to Joseph. There's all of these kind of gatherings and, and the genealogy that kind of traces Jesus' life. And so a lot has been said that Jesus is the Son of God. And so we come, and now we're going to see, well, what does it look like? What does it look like if Jesus is the Son of God? And so the tempter comes and says, hey, you're the Son of God, right? Right? Well, then. Shouldn't you be taking care of all these people? The turning the stone to bread is not just a a personal story. It's a social one. The temptation is to feed everyone. The quotation that Jesus uses, uh, a person does not live by bread alone, 
is a quotation from Deuteronomy that's telling the story of the manna and how God provided miraculously uh, for all the people. Matthew's gospel makes this a little clearer because he uses the plural, change these stones into loaves of bread. And to change those stones and loaves of bread would have not just fed Israel, it would have fed the whole world. Uh, the Judean wilderness looks a bit like the Grand Canyon, you know, or um, uh, if you can think of an episode of the Roadrunner and, and Wile E. Coyote, right? Like, you know, there's kind of elevated plains out there in Arizona, New Mexico. Like, that's, that's what the Judean wilderness looks like. It is rocky. And then, the, and then all of a sudden, in the midst of all these rocks are bigger rocks that stick up. And then on top of them are other rocks, right? It also reminds me of that passage, you know, if we don't worship, the rocks will cry out. Listen, my friends, we don't want the rocks there crying out. That We'd all go deaf. There's too many rocks. And so the temptation, remember who Jesus is and the, and the role that Jesus is to play. Jesus is the Son of God. He's to play the role of the Messiah, the Christ. He's the one who's supposed to provide. And so turning the stones into bread seems like doing what he's called to do. But he says, a person doesn't live by bread alone. He resists the temptation to do it himself and to feed everyone. I think this is a temptation that is alive and well in our culture today. We're a do-it-yourself culture. You know, don't rely on the government don't rely on a handout. Just do it. Right? It's the Nike slogan. Just do it. Work hard. Buckle down. Bootstraps up. If, you, if something's wrong, there's nothing that you can't fix with a trip to home, uh, Lowe's or Home Depot. Except the faith is not that. The faith is not a do-it-yourself journey. Try it sometime. Forgive your sins. Uh, alleviate yourself of your egotism or your arrogance or your greed. Just try it. Make yourself a better person. Let's all do it right now. It just doesn't work that way. Spiritual maturity is, is not a, about ever increasing amounts of independence. Spiritual maturity is about ever-increasing amounts of dependence. It's those who depend on God that are really the spiritually mature. It's when we try to do it ourselves that we show ourselves to be immature in our faith. Because this is not about a do-it-yourself. We don't live by bread alone. We live by the voice of God. Then, then Satan's like, all right, Look at this. And in Matthew's gospel, it's this real spatial metaphor. It says he took them to a high mountain and he showed them the kingdoms of the world. In Luke, it's more of a temporal metaphor. It says in a moment, in a flash, he showed them the kingdoms of the world. And he said, hey, you're the son of God, right? Yes. 
So are you supposed to be the king? I'll give you all these things. Of course, Jesus' response is that, how does he respond? Anybody know? Worship only God. I think that's the last one. Don't, nope, it's worship God, thanks. Test your God is the last one. I didn't mean to confuse you. Worship only God. Now, a lot of, a lot of things I think need to be said in this moment. Satan wasn't offering Jesus something he didn't have. Satan, at least in Luke, is described as the ruler of this age, as the ruler of this world. If that doesn't make sense to you, you need to look around a little more. I mean, look around at at the deprivation. Look around at the way we treat one another. Look around at the disease and the hunger and the war and the famine and the hatred. And if that doesn't look like evil's in charge, I don't know what does. Our hope, right, is that in the coming of God, God will make those things right. We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven because it ain't currently happening that way. That's why we pray for it. And so, of course, what Jesus wants to do, what Jesus is called to do, what Jesus' role is to be, is the ruler of all these things. This is a a political temptation. Does Jesus want to liberate the oppressed? I mean, he'll say later, like literally later in this chapter in Luke, the Spirit is upon me in order to liberate the oppressed to bind up the brokenhearted, to set it free, the captive. So what's the temptation here then? Will Jesus be a king like the kings of the earth? Will Jesus bow down and compromise and be something that's contrary to who he is in order to accomplish his role. And of course he says, no, I can't worship you. We, we worship only God. And so the, if the first temptation was social, feed everyone, and the second temptation was political, liberate everyone, then the last one seems to be religious. He takes them to the temple that's kind of the ultimate religious symbol. And, and Mikkel mentioned this last week, Satan quotes scripture as to why Jesus should jump off the temple. That is a very disturbing part of the story. That Satan quotes scripture. Now, I understand why he would, right? Because as Jesus is resisting these temptations, as Jesus is overcoming the test, he's using scripture as a way to get there. And so it just makes sense that Satan would then resort to scripture 
as, as a way of sweetening his temptation. Hey, look, this must be right. And the psalm that Satan quotes is our call to worship today. It is Psalm 91. It's a psalm that talks about God's provision and God's protection. We used to sing this old praise and worship song back in the 80s and 90s, uh, You Are My Hiding Place. You know that one? You are my hiding place. You always fill my life with joy and deliverance. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. That is a beautiful song. And Satan chose that song to quote to Jesus about why he should jump off. And if I'm honest, sometimes I kind of wish he would have. Like, come on, God, let's do these things. Let's, let's show these people who you really are. Who, wouldn't, who of us would not want God to just persuade our loved ones by, by acts of miraculous activity? Will Jesus win Jerusalem by coercing, uh, coercing faith? In some ways, I think this is the inverse of that first temptation. Like if the first temptation is to do it yourself, which I think is alive and well, we have to learn to trust in God. We have to learn to rely on God. There's nothing that actually needs to be done in you that you can do yourself anyway. So on the one hand, we resist that temptation and say we're going to rely on God. On the other hand, we're not to presume on God. Don't, don't test God, Jesus says. God's not to be tested. We are, again, to trust God, to believe in him. The Israelites from the wilderness, and they're like, whoa, whoa Moses, where have you brought us? I mean, we're in the desert, and we don't have anything to drink. I mean, at least when we were slaves in Egypt, you know, we had a few things. And so Moses, you know, calls for the elders, and they go out, and he takes the same staff that had split the waters at the Red Sea, and he hits the rock, and out of the rock, the water flows. That's the story that's being cited here. But it ends with the... With the condemnation on the people for not trusting God, for trying to test God. Let's see if you're real. That's, that's, a, that's a tough one too. So what can we learn from these temptations of Jesus this morning? I hinted at this earlier, but I want to hit this again. It is not a sin to be tempted. Hebrews says that our high priest Jesus Christ, has been tested in every way. He knows what it's like. And if Jesus was tested, was tempted, and was without sin, then it's not a sin to be tempted. It happens to all of us. And the next is this. Temptation is not something you overcome by sheer will. You can't just white-knuckle it. Overcoming temptation comes from God. 
We trust in God. We live by the, by the word of God. We don't worship other things, and we don't test God. We rely on scriptures the way Jesus did. Of course, in order to rely on the scriptures, you have to kind of know the scriptures. Reading scripture and even studying scripture is, is an important part of, of the life of the Christian. Not so we can get in an argument over some ideological idea, but so that we'll know the text and how to live. So that the text can shape us. Now, with the caveat, and it's an important warning, that Satan quotes scriptures too. So if you've ever heard somebody say, well, just give me a scripture for that. Mm, That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about rightly dividing the word. Paul says to Timothy, don't be ashamed. Be a worker laboring in word and doctrine, rightly dividing the word of truth. The reason we have to rightly divide the word of truth is because it's possible to wrongly divide the word of truth. And if you need an example of what it means to wrongly divide the word of truth, look at Luke 4 and Satan's use of Psalm 91. That's wrongly dividing the word of truth. This is why we have the church. This is why we have ministers to to preach the doctrine, right? So that we, this is why we have the creeds to realize the centrality of what we believe. Thirdly, and lastly here, the faith is not reducible to having our individual needs met, but it does involve meeting the needs of others. It's interesting to me that every temptation that Jesus resists in Luke 4, later in the story, he ends up participating in. Like, don't turn... Stones into bread. Don't do a miraculous feeding. And then he multiplies the loaves and feeds 5,000. Don't, you know, don't worship Satan so that you can be the ruler of the world, yet he gets announced as the king of the world. Don't uh, throw yourself down, yet even though he's crucified by the Romans, he gets resurrected. Like every part of the story that he's not doing here, somehow he is doing there. Uh, There's an important lesson there to be learned. That part of temptation, again, temptation is often the temptation to do good, not evil. Part of what makes whatever the tempting is wrong is the timing. is, Is the context. Not the thing in itself. It's not wrong to feed people. But it is wrong to imagine that we can get along without God. It's it's not wrong for for Jesus to be in control and for us to have ideological alignment with the kingdom of God, but there's not a coercive or manipulative way to get there. There's only this kind of sacrificial and peaceful way to get there. Um, miraculous things do happen and and when they do we're grateful for them but we can't imagine that God has to do this or that in order for us to believe because then we're not really believing in God we're believing in some event the other passages from the the lectionary today that got paired with this story in Luke in addition to the psalm which of course makes sense because it's the psalm that was quoted 
There's this story in, in Deuteronomy, and, and it's about remembering the provision of the Lord. And it says, remember what God has done, how God delivered us out of Egypt and brought us into the promised land. And when you do so, bring some of your first fruits to the priest. And when you give those first fruits to the priest, uh, pronounce that you remember the Lord and you love the Lord. And it says this at the end. It says, then you, together with the Levites, that's the priests, and the aliens who reside among you, shall celebrate with all the bounty that the Lord your God has given to you in your house. It's an interesting part of the story there. Why why include those aliens that live among you? How, How is it that the provision of the Lord somehow reaches out to those people. I mean, it's one thing, yeah, we, we have this idea of bringing our tithes and offering into the church, right? We get that from the Hebrews' practice of bringing their tithes and offerings into the temple or to the, into the synagogue or the tabernacle before the temple. But somehow, I don't think we should miss that part that it's with the priests and the aliens that reside among you. Because I think God's provision... God's enablement to overcome temptation is not just for us. Like that's part of the original temptation. Do you want to be like God? Do you want to know right from wrong? Do you want to be on the top? Yes. I kind of do. But that's wrong. That's not like Jesus. Jesus is the servant of all. Jesus is is the one who dies for all. And in the story of the coming to give our first fruits, it also provides for the aliens. The epistle passage, you know well, it comes from, from Romans chapter 10. And again, I think we often read that passage as though it has to do with how I can become a Christian. And I think we might be missing the point because I don't know that the story is about how I can become a Christian. I think it might be a story about how God is is going to save people. It says this, for this is how that story ends there in Romans 10. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. The same Lord is the Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. And then there's this quotation from the Old Testament. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But what if they're Jews? They should call on the name of the Lord. Well, what if they're Greeks? They should call on the name of the Lord. Our Lord doesn't differentiate. Like the aliens who are living amongst us get provided for. Everyone here has the opportunity of forgiveness. We serve a creator of all things. If God can create the universe, God can overcome our temptations. We need God more than the air we breathe. We need God more than the food we eat. God's ways are higher than our ways. 
We can't coerce our way or manipulate our way or will our way to wholeness. We can't get there through our politics. We can't get there through our power. Our practice is simply one of trust. Lift up your eyes, brothers and sisters, for our redemption is near. you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.